You may be seated. God, we come to you this morning and we thank you and praise you for your goodness and your grace. We thank you, God, that you have never given up on us. We thank you that in the midst of trials and struggle, you are always there. And God, we come to you with that kind of hope this morning. Lord, please, will you direct us to where you want us to go? Help us to understand you in a deeper way. And help us to have that submissive attitude of you can have everything. It's interesting when you talk about how to defeat the devil, the first words are submit yourself to God. And so we do that this morning. And we trust that you're going to speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've already talked this morning a little bit with Steve about suffering. And it was really interesting when I got here this morning and I knew what the topic was going to be, of course, and how everything that's happened has flowed into this idea that God is working. And it started in the prayer time. And I want you to know something, that there's a lot of prayer that goes on in this church before we start. But people just crying out that God would heal and that God would show himself. And when you look at the events that are happening around us, the, the evil, the confusion, this dark cloud that seems to be hanging over everything just kind of sits there. The massacre in Las Vegas, the, the allegations of sexual abuse that are coming out of Hollywood, the dictators that are rattling their sabers all just unnerve us, frustrate us. And anger us. And the thinking person then asks the question, is there a God? And if there is a God, where is he? You Christians are always talking about this God you follow. Then why are there hurricanes? Why are people getting gunned down? How do you tie that all together? And many of you are asking the same question. And, and even though you may be walking in faith this morning... There's still a part, of, a part of you and a part of me that just can't understand this. But this morning I want the text to speak to that as we follow the life of Joseph. I mean, you have Joseph going through all of these things. He's continually running up against hardship and suffering. That None of it was his fault. But in the midst of all of that, but God was, but God is. God is something amazing, and He's a person that we can trust. So I want to answer that question when you leave here today. Where is God? And the narrative will take us there. So I want you to open your Bibles, if you would, and we're going to begin this morning in Genesis 37, beginning in verse 25. Genesis 37, beginning in verse 25. Page 31, if you want to grab that Bible in front of you. You can also use your app. Just pull it out. You can just touch media and you go to sermon notes, life of Joseph, and then just touch the date today. Just follow the prompts and you'll end up being able to follow along. You'll see the outline and so forth. So here we are in this narrative. You have this 17 year old boy, Joseph, who's this shepherd, and he's with his family in Canaan. And. Everything seems to be okay, except there's one problem going on, and that is his father is doting on him to the point where it's embarrassing. 
to the point where he gives Joseph a birthright that was to go to his oldest brother. So tension began to simmer in the family. And as a mark of that birthright, Jacob gives Joseph this tunic that we've come to know as the multicolored robe. And now jealousy has taken root and the brothers are enraged. Then the dream. Two parts. But, same meaning. And Joseph went to his brothers and his father and he said, The dreams mean that I will rule over you and you will bow to me. And then everything came apart. The brothers desire to destroy this dream. So you had the dreamer and you had the destroyers of the dream. So his father asked Joseph to go check on his brothers up north, 65 miles away. Dangerous territory. He meets the killers of the dream, his brothers. They have this confrontation and they strip him of the robe. They beat him and they throw him in a cistern that had no water in it, left him there to die. They left their 17-year-old brother there to die. And that's a perfectly legitimate question to look at that and say, where is God? Why isn't he protecting Joseph? Why isn't he protecting the dream? But we'll find out. And so we're going to pick up Moses' words, who is the narrator of this event, in verse 25. And they're almost shocking when you read the first phrase in verse 25. Then they sat down to eat. What? Like, seriously? They had just stripped their brother. They had just thrown him in a pit to die. And what do they do? They sit down and have a meal. So immediately we're struck by the depravity of the situation. And there's incredible darkness. And so this section really is, as we move through, a portrait of darkness. And we're going to see it at several levels this morning. We're going to see it in the idea of the human hardened heart, the inhumanity of slavery, deceit. We're going to see it in grief. And we're going to wonder all along, where is God? What is he doing? Why does he seem absent? So you have, you have the brothers who we've come to know and love. And the first thing we're going to see in this portrait of darkness is their hardened hearts. Their brothers strip Joseph bare. They tear up that tunic. They don't want to see that anymore. They're tired of that. And so... They desire to kill the dream. And are they at all concerned? Are they remorseful? Are they sitting in a group going, wow, guys, like, man, I'm not sure this is the right thing to do. No, they're eating a meal as if nothing happened. They're at Culver's ordering the butter burger. And meanwhile, their brothers and a cistern left there to die. And you think to yourself, where is God in that? Why isn't he doing something? Why isn't he working? But the narrative will lead us to the answer. So there's more darkness and an opportunity arises. Look at the second half of 25 through 28. Now, an opportunity to get this dream away forever comes upon the brothers. 
And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, hey, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he's our brother, our own flesh. Now he's getting a conscience when there's money involved. And his brothers listened to him. 28. Then the Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. They sell their brother into slavery. They see an opportunity and they take it. Now, if you notice the wording here, the, the Ishmaelites are in this caravan. And, and what's interesting about this family line is how deceit and, and hardened hearts just came through the entire line of the patriarchs. You have the Ishmaelites who were descendants of Abraham via Hagar, not his wife. You have Midianites from Abraham via Keturah, not his wife. Both relationships are out of deception and disobedience. So now you have these two peoples. Warring against Israel. But here, the Ishmaelites are taking Joseph. That's the general designation for desert tribes. So, what happened? They thought to themselves, listen, this is kind of nice. We don't actually have to kill him. We can simply sell him. And then, we don't have to have blood on our hands. And so they do. And they make a profit. And it's a win-win. Unless you're Joseph. (laughs) So you have the brothers doing this outright awful sale into slavery. And he was sold for 20 shekels of silver. And and normally in that time, someone like Joseph would have gone for 30, but they probably wanted to get rid of him. Maybe he was too young. Maybe he wasn't a good worker. I don't know. 20 shekels of silver. And remember, Jesus was sold for shekels as well. And so you have this Jesus-Joseph. You have this... Suffering, You have this sale, the betrayal of those that he trusted. And some of you know exactly how that feels to be betrayed by someone that you trust. Some of you have been in that dark place where someone that was supposed to be looking out for you turned on you and used you. And so you have people that have gone through sexual abuse and physical abuse and this constant Verbal abuse, infidelity, lying, deception, whatever. And it's devastating. Why? Because these people are meant to protect us. And not even are we left to be vulnerable, but we are attacked. And so we are left in shambles to cry out, where are you, God? Where, where is your protection? You talk to sexual abuse victims and they'll talk about how they, they literally have to make their minds leave their bodies to survive. And you, and you, and you hear these stories and they're, they're horrific stories and you ask God, why aren't you protecting people? I mean, I prayed for my son Taylor for, for 21 years. Protect Taylor by the blood of Christ. Every day. And he gets shot and killed. Where's God in that? How do you you even begin to reconcile that? And that's what 
is so difficult about these kinds of things. But the text will give us an answer. It'll help us to begin to wade through that process. So you have hardened hearts, you have slavery, and now we're going to see the darkness of deception. And now it's starting to get very, very sad, as Donald Trump would say, very sad. This is deception that is beyond belief. And Reuben resurfaces in order to save his brother. Look at 29 through 35. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and he returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone and I, where shall I go? The tearing of the clothes is a sign of grieving in that culture. Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood, the robe in the blood, and they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it's your son's robe or not. And Jacob identified it and he said, It's it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. And then Joseph tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins. It's this rough material that, again, was mourning. And he mourned his son for many days. And his sons all and his daughters all rose up to tell him the truth? No. To comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. In other words, I'm taking this to the grave. I'm going to mourn my way to the grave. You can't make this right. He had just lost a precious son. Now, there's a couple of... One side note here is when you look at the the family trying to interact with him, he doesn't want to have interaction because he's grieving. And when when you encounter darkness and grief in another person... Don't try to fix that grief. Walk alongside of the grief. You can't fix the person. You can't make it go away. And you can't make them like they were before the event happened. So just walk with them. You don't have to say anything. Just being there will mean so much. And here you have Reuben who comes around and he's looking for Joseph. Remember, he could have saved Joseph, but he waited and now it's too late. And so he shows up, and, he, and, and he's, he's, he's grieved, at least for a little while. Now he's duplicitous with his brothers. And they have this plan. And it seems like a really good plan. And so they tore his robe, and they dipped it in blood. But what I found interesting about this, too, is it's ironic that Jacob, the one who's grieving, did the same thing. And he tricked his father Isaac out of the birthright that belonged to Esau and got his father to believe that that was the right thing to do. And so the robe enters as this, this, this symbol of love. Now it's, it's a symbol of hate. It's a symbol of discomfort. And I gotta, here's the picture. You not only have a family being destroyed, you have the loss of hope for the entire nation of Israel. Because the plan is to take Joseph out of Canaan where there was going to be a famine, where Israel was his family, and get them to a place where they could thrive so that Jesus could come. Now that dream 
It seemed to be over. Where's God? Why, why isn't He intervening? Where are the angels? Joseph is, has been sold into slavery. I mean, even Jeremiah got this. In Jeremiah 31, Rachel is weeping for her children. Rachel is Joseph's mother. Israel's future, the dream, was in severe trouble. And the dream is the centerpiece of the entire narrative. And so you, you, you have this constant pushing against the dream. You've got the brothers and their jealousy and their hardness of hearts and their deceit and their violence. And they're pushing against this dream. And it doesn't seem to be getting any better because we see now the darkness of a father's grief. And you would think at least now God would enter in. At least now God would come alongside and nudge somebody to tell the poor man the truth. But instead we see this incredible deception. And I'm sure... At first reading of the story, some would look at Jacob and they would say, this is your fault anyway. You're the one who was doting on your son. You're the one who sent him to Dothan. You're the one that caused all this friction in the family. You're the one that didn't believe the dream. But the, the grief is too raw. You can't accuse him of anything because he's grieving to the point where he cannot receive comfort. And you see this again in 35. All of his sons and daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. So Sheol in this culture is this shadowy kind of mystical place that has been um, further defined now for us. But there's this definite belief in the afterlife, and there's this definite belief in conscious existence in the afterlife. And someday I'll do some really cool drawings on a whiteboard and show you Abraham's bosom and how Christ came and moved us that and all that. But we can't do that this morning. I'll more confuse you. But just go to say that they believed that there was an afterlife. It's the same thing what happened to David. He's grieving over his son. And they say to him, why would you stop? He goes, I'm going to see him in Sheol anyway. But even Sheol is a dark place. Even the thought of Sheol, this, this mystical, sort of dark, shadowy, foggy place of death. I mean, this is a dark narrative. And so, it's just the first thoughts you have when you hear about what happened in Las Vegas. or the thoughts that come when you see pictures of Puerto Rico. It's where, why don't you do something, God? And you have people coming to you at work or at school, in neighborhoods, and they're saying, how can you believe in that? This isn't the God I want to follow. Well, now the text is going to help us out. But it's not going to be in the way that you think, and it's not going to be Obvious. I want you to look at verse 36. This is going to be the most anticlimactic answer you've ever seen since math class. All right? Verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, 
the captain of the guard. And you're thinking, okay, come on, read some more. No, that's it. You're thinking, he's, 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 he's sold into slavery. He's going to go to work for this guy. And you're telling me that this proves that God is working. Well, it does. And here, for the first time, we see a glimpse of hope in this series of events. Because God's plan is taking shape. God's plan is beginning to evolve. The dream is not dead. Joseph is on his way to Egypt. This was the plan all along. Now, you can bicker with God about his, his methodology, like, why didn't you just give him a one-way trip? But God knew what he was doing, and Joseph now is on his way to Egypt. And in the house of Potiphar, Joseph, Joseph will learn how to rule, because he was appointed to rule. The dream was about ruling. It is about creating a nation. It is about Birthing Messiah, Jesus Christ, who would come into the world and die for sin and save all of those who would have faith in him. That's what this dream is all about. And God was bringing it about. And so you think, why did, why did God bring Joseph to this confrontation with his brothers all the way up there in Dothan? It wasn't some random place. It was because the caravans went through there and it came at the perfect time. They're eating their, their meal, and the caravan comes by. You think that's a coincidence? No, it's not a coincidence. That's where God wanted Joseph to be. What, what you say, well, why, why did God cause Joseph so much suffering? Why, why couldn't he have just put him there? It's because the timing had to be perfect. There had to be guilt on the brothers because there would be reconciliation. Because Joseph Jesus, this typology, has reconciliation in it where we are reconciled to God through Christ. Suffering is a part of that narrative. Doesn't seem fair, but fair isn't really in our vocabulary with God because he knows more than we do and he's at work. So do you see how the simple fact that Joseph is being brought to Egypt is an, is an answer to that question. Where is God? God is at work. Now, it's not obvious. And so we get tripped up because so often in Genesis, we get this obvious interaction with the patriarchs. But here it's so implicit and so behind the scenes that God is still working. And so I want you to trust that in your own lives. I want you to see that happen. Because here's the truth I want to leave you with this morning is, is I want you to know that God is always working and you can depend on Him. So life can sometimes be so disheartening, so discouraging, and so frustrating. It can be absolutely confusing. And there are nights, I don't know about you, but I go to bed and I'm just, I feel like I've just 
I'm trying to be anchored in Christ and I'm trying to be anchored in the Word. And I had my, my prayer times and I had my, my Bible reading. And I'm doing all the right stuff, but I just feel like I'm not grounded because all of this stuff is circulating around in my brain. Part of it is because I think God says, you know what? The reason you feel that way, Paul, is because this isn't your home. So you're going to feel out of place. But life can be that way. And, and I know some of you are in that spot this morning. You're discouraged. You, you feel hopeless. You're going through incredible pain. There are people in your life that are suffering. And you're saying, where are you, God? And I'm here to say that God is working. And God has a plan. And God knew all of this pain and all of this suffering. Now, do we understand why God chooses how he works? Why things happen like hurricanes and massacres? Now, I, I can't answer that question for you. But what we can do is we can walk in faith. And we can take this biblical truth that God is working. And we can live with confidence, because we don't have to have all the answers. And I'm going to break one of the Christian bubbles for you right now. And I'm sorry to do this. You can take notes and you can write, I don't like Paul anymore, if you, don't, if you want to. Because that's pretty much on every card I read back. No, it's not. You guys are really gracious. But I hear this so much. You know, I don't understand, but when I get to heaven, oh, it'll be so good to know what everything God will reveal what he chooses to reveal. The Bible is very clear. God has a secret sovereign will. But the point of that is we aren't going to care because we're going to be at peace and we're going to trust him and his sovereignty in our lives. And, and what the thing about sovereignty, when we talk about the sovereignty of God, the providence of God, it's always painted in Scripture as something that's positive and something that is comfort to the believer. And so you have Joseph saying these words at the end of the narrative. As for you, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. In other words, you had real evil actions. You had real evil intentions. People did get hurt. But God meant it for good. And that leaves us in tension. Can't solve it. Don't try to solve everything in the Bible. Can't solve it. It's like a Rubik's Cube. You just have to trust the tension and leave it there. And the problem with God's sovereignty in the world, it's always labeled. You know, oh, you believe in God's sovereignty. Oh, you're a Calvinist. Oh, you're reformed. No, I just believe that God's sovereign. I don't want to be labeled. I'm a Christian. That's what the Bible teaches. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. That's sovereignty. <laughs> and I want you to take joy in it. I want you to know there's never a moment, there's never a part of your day, there's never a second that God isn't sovereignly watching over your steps. He's way out in front of you. He's already been to where you're going. So walk in joy, walk in confidence. And there's a psalm I want to leave you with. Psalm 27, 13 and 14. I love this. I've probably tweeted this out way too many times to all my hundreds of thousands of followers. I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I'm going to stop right there for a second. Too often as Christians, we say, and it's true, heaven will be a place of glory and, and no more suffering 
and we'll see Christ and we'll be with Christ. And who doesn't want that? I want that. You want that. This is why we have to tell our, neighborhood, our neighbors and our, and our friends that there is, a, there is a Christ that loves them and Jesus is w- with them. But what, what the psalmist is saying here is you don't have to wait to get to heaven because there is goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. That's us. We're still alive. And then this really wonderful exaltation. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Why would the psalmist say that if the Lord wasn't showing up? Why would he say that if he didn't believe that God is sovereign over your life? I don't know what it is for you, what you're going through. I, you know, and maybe you're just thinking to yourself, man, this guy's a downer. This guy is like depressing. I did smile like three times during the message, though, if you noticed. But I do know one thing. I know that there's things, there are things going on in this world that we don't outright understand. And when you ask the question, where is God? The answer is, he's where he's always been. He's on the throne. He's reigning. He is the king. He is sovereign. He loves you deeply. He understands your pain and your suffering. And he's walking with you in it. That's where God is. That's where he was for Joseph. And we can take heart because that plan of Joseph succeeded. God brought him there. Israel exploded into this great nation. Jesus came. And because Jesus lives, we can face all the trials of our lives. And that's pretty exciting. So let's pray and thank God for this incredible plan. God, thank you for being okay with, with questions, being okay with us not understanding, being okay with, with questions that are left hanging because your plan is so extensive and so beautiful and so wonderful that we wouldn't understand it anyway. But you are still working and your redemptive plan is unfolding as we speak. And one day you will come and you will take us to yourselves and we will be with you forever. But in the meantime, God, we cry out for comfort. We cry out for hope. And as we sing, we will sing about your grace that is Jesus who is the King, who is the only way to be saved, who is our High Priest. And we will sing because we love Him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.